Welcome to AI Talk with Juliana Neilbauer. I'm a partner in the corporate group. I also am in the intellectual property group at Fox Rothschild, and I support entertainment and sports law, health, cybersecurity, data privacy, supply chain, and a host of other medical device and medical services companies in my practice. I'm here because I also am one of the founding members of our artificial intelligence group at the firm. And today I'm happy to bring to our talk uh, a very great partner of the firm that has worked with a number of our clients in the past and continues to develop new service offerings that align with our client need, which is SRM. SRM is a corporate intelligence firm that initially developed a, a strong reputation in that arena and then built upon that foundation with growth into cyber risk advisory services and other kinds of auditing and reporting and governance protocol programming. I will go ahead and introduce my representative from SRM and my new friend, Matthew Mettenheimer, who will provide more information about his background. But most important to us is that he is the associate director at SRM that oversees effectively a lot of our North American needs at the firm and for our clients in North America. Matt, welcome, and please introduce yourself further. Hey, it's it's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Like you said, my name is Matthew Menheimer, Associate Director in our Cyber Advisory Practice. A little bit about me, I started my career at PwC, worked there for several years working on large-scale strategy transformation projects, mainly in the financial sector, before I moved over to Grant Thorne to help work with our third-party risk management practice and build out that practice with some great colleagues over there. And then finally, I've moved over to SRM to help build out our U.S. advisory practice over here in the cyberspace. So it's really great to speak with you today and very excited to talk about AI. It's a really hot topic for a lot of our clients recently. Matt, I sympathize, right? We've been talking outside of this. And here we thought, let's bring each of our knowledge, especially regarding third-party risk concerns that executive suites, and even more importantly now, boards of directors are reaching out to both of us about Ideally, they're going to do so before they implement an AI solution, integration, or partnership, but very often it's after it's already down the tracks or deployed, and we're trying to help them mitigate risk rather than reduce it up front or potentially even eliminate it in some cases, although that's a pretty hard lift in this ever-changing legal environment. Before we dive into what I would like us to do, which is a case study if you're up for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe less than a case study, let's take a live workshop approach and provide our listeners with a scenario that we both have heard and how we would advise, walk through steps of evaluating risk and also help them deploy and get to market without slowdown, right, while they try to leverage these new technologies. But before I do that, I just want to level set with our audience and make sure those who are still new to understanding what these technologies are, AI, we're talking about artificial intelligence. That can include machine learning-based systems that often are based upon a neural network of evaluating inputs from the user as well as an existing data corpus and giving you an answer to your immediate question. And that traditionally was the, the great innovation of Google search, right? That's a great example where traditional search was a hokey and didn't give you what you wanted, but Google continued to innovate on search and look for sentiment analysis, look at formal linguistics in order to understand what the user was really asking and then provide the best search results possible. That's, of course, up for debate. 
And then beyond that level, then we now are in this realm of uh, generative AI, including the most famous ChatGPT. But also before that, we had other tools such as AlphaGo that was beating Go Masters in the games around the world. And then more recently, we've had a proliferation with Midjourney and Dali also from OpenAI, and then a, a host of tools from Microsoft, Facebook, everyone's getting in the game of trying to create generative AI. So the real distinction there between the existing AI that looks at a large data corpus, learns what it thinks human beings want, and then tells you the answer, is that now generative AI, the word generative, is not giving you just the answer, but also taking uh, requests from you to then format that answer into a new work product that will solve your need, not just answer your question. And that could be in a form of writing, that could be a video, that could be a sound file, that could be um, a visual work, and or all of the above integrated together. So Matt, I, I don't know if you've actually played around, but do you have a favorite generative AI tool? Yeah, so I always try to be tool agnostic, but I, I think everyone's played around with ChatGPT before because it is such a fun tool, especially when it first came on the marketplace. But there's quite a bit coming out in a lot of different sectors. So excited to see which industries start picking up the unique AI tools for each one. I feel the same way. ChatGPT is where most people start. I'm going to give a shout out to Bard, which I think gets better results, or at least it did before the 4.0 plus ChatGPT came out because it had a data corpus that was more live and feeding it. And so again, hat tip to Google for that. But in general, I also want to clarify that because both you and I are relatively early adopters of these types of technologies, including dabbling in the integrations, in my case, because I serve the software industry, some of my clients are building on top of these APIs and spinning out new products every day that can solve service needs or just pain points for the average user of these tools. And so I have to keep up with them, right? And I'm always adopting them and using them. But I'm curious to trade notes really quickly with you about what your firm's policy internally is. At our firm, we came out in March of 2023, which was relatively early, with a formal policy that all of our firm is allowed to use these tools. In fact, we consider it part of our ethical duty as lawyers to keep up with new technologies that could make the practice of law more efficient under our ethics rules in all 50 states. And so we are not only permitted, but required to play with them, get familiar with them, feel competent enough that we could use them and also assess their value to our practice, but also therefore talk about them with our clients, but with great limitations. Any work that we do is typically with the marketing pros that would be created or potentially with maybe a first draft, a research cut, but it's never a final draft. It should always be reviewed and validated with any kind of LexisNexis or independent research. Partners would always need to supervise that work and review it. And then further, we are responsible to report to our clients and notify them if we leverage any of these tools in their work. And last but not least, we are never, of course, allowed to submit any information in a prompt into these tools that includes any confidential information, client identifying information, or any specific deal or litigation-related information, even if it's in the general public domain in most cases, we are going to avoid any kind of um, input that might reflect our specific case or matter because we have to expect that the AI is training on that and might spit out some result or some narrative on the basis of that information. So it's somewhat of a limited use tool until we get any kind of proprietary in-house closed door firewalled from the regular internet kind of corpus of data that we're using to feed ourselves. What about your firm? 
Yeah, so our firm is working with AI tools. We do have them on our uh, organization, but just as you said, right, we also have built out the governance that our organization has to follow with those tools, not disclosing private information of our customer base onto it, making sure that we do have everything up to speed and in regulations with various locations and districts, because that is where a lot of organizations can fall into issues is accidentally disclosing information because you are trying to make your work more efficient and putting that now into a third party's hand. And now we're seeing the accidental disclosure. We saw that with Samsung and some source code with Microsoft. So right. it's something that everyone is cautious about, but we are excited to test out. Yeah. And I could hear that you were speaking carefully and professionally there because there's a lawyer on the phone who's, of course, observing closely what how you're performing. But you know what? We can calm down. This is a safe space, right? We're going to talk freely. And also, I know have complete confidence that your organization of any is, uh, is very careful about making sure it complies with regulations. So as a result of that, thanks for sharing. It's always fascinating to see what our peer organizations that are also serving in this industry space are doing and to validate that we're we're all running in the same direction here, trying to figure out ways to safely and properly use these technologies or not in certain circumstances, when to carve out and when to say hard no. To that point, I think it would be fun before we do our workshop moment to talk about how far we've come. You might remember in January of 2023, right, a year ago now, the Cyber Risk Alliance did this survey of over, I think, 150 companies that were on the AI topic, especially related to third-party risk, where it's not just what you're doing in-house, what we've just talked about. It's not just your own governance being proper and your own procedures and your own trainings being proper. But can you rely upon your subcontractors, your vendors, uh, to be doing the right things, especially when we have so little visibility? And what they did find as, as a top level was the increase in third-party and third parties in general, as we proliferate these tools and the uses of them, and it's under the surface with our vendors and their sub-vendors, it's very difficult for us to have transparency and visibility into who's even using AI or generative AI in their business servicing for us. And then add to that the limited supply of, of visibility tools, right? We're actually getting less visibility over time as these are adopted internally and in our contracts, in the way we do business and the service deliveries that we do, so much is you know white labeled and delivered to us without any disclosure because in many cases, these tools in the past would just be considered software subscriptions, right? SaaS subscriptions of the providers of the contract chain, and it would not be a requirement under contract that they'd be disclosed at all. And so add those two things together, the increase of you know subcontracting down the chain to all of us. And the outsourcing of more and more aspects of service delivery up and down the chain and that limited visibility and the risk of third-party issues arising, whether it be traditional cybersecurity or data privacy violations, IP violations, which all get bundled together in AI service delivery. It's just increased dramatically. And so this is a huge concern. What they found was that over half the reporting companies on their survey, actually it was 57% were victims of a cybersecurity incident within the prior two years. So over half that reported this voluntarily. And of that 57%, um, 100% of those they claimed was originated by a third party. So in other words, 
whatever they're not telling us about their own cyber incidents that they created internally, the ones that they were willing to report were all 57% said they had an incident that was effectively caused by a third party in their supply chain. And who is that? Software vendors represented 52% of those incidents. And that could be an attack or a breach. And then partners, subcontractors, just other run-of-the-mill IT providers, not software delivery companies, were at the other 40%. And and why did this happen? Because they think you know, more than half of them said they lacked the staff who were qualified to even evaluate whether there was a risk in hiring and engaging and how they were integrating those different vendors and third parties for these types of risk because the risks are so new, right? And they're highly technical. And so as a result, everyone responded by, what did you do to respond to this? How are you protecting yourself now? You know, 100% said, we've implemented new training. We think that's a first step in compliance. And then secondarily, more than 60% were considering purchasing new third-party risk software platforms. So again, outsourcing to another vendor as you have to, um, if you don't have the in-house expertise to ensure that you don't have these risks ongoing. Because as we all know, it doesn't matter if your third-party vendor created the risk and created the breach for you. You're still part of that breach incident. You then, as a vendor to your customers, are the source of that issue and have to do disclosures. There's compliance steps. There's additional potential fines or even private action that could be brought against you by no immediate fault of your own. Did you see that a lot of your clients, when they would have these incidents, they would initially respond, we'll just do some trainings. Is that commensurate with what you saw? Yeah. So it is interesting, right? Especially around the third-party risk topic. I always like to say, just because you outsource the process doesn't mean you outsource the risk. And what we're seeing with a lot of these organizations, when they are having to disclose that their third party got breached or their fourth party had a breach or incident, they start looking internally going, we had no idea our data was out there being used in this type of fashion, being sent to other organizations without our consent or knowledge of. So what we have been seeing is a double down of assessments and understanding what that risk landscape looks like and who has access to your data. And with AI in particular, right? That is such an important topic of how is this data going to be used? How is it going to be sent to other organizations? Is it going to be used for the training of the, the AI to further the tool? Do we own this data? Does the organization providing the AI tool on that data? It's a really tricky topic. We just released our cyber insights report and 97% of our companies we interviewed said that they wanted to implement AI. Now, 50, roughly 50% of those organizations noted that they don't feel like they're comfortable today to implement AI. So you get that kind of disconnect of, we know we want to go here. We know that third-party risk has been driving, but we have no idea how to build ourselves a strong organization and a strong model to effectively use this so that we can feel comfortable as an organization and our clients and our customers can feel comfortable with us as an organization as well. So a lot of fun things there. Matt, I am seeing very similar requests. I have leadership on the business uh, unit side saying, we, we're doing this. We already have it in our project plan. It's in our goal. We, we see the value of it. Maybe even our clients and customers downstream are asking for us to offer these types of services because they want to see the efficiency. But now they need to make sure that in their contracts, 
the risk is mitigated. And so they're bringing uh, folks like me in to look over their insurance policies and confirm that they're not going to get denials for any claims that happen. But more importantly, we usually start with looking at confidentiality clauses around where that data is going to go. And to your point, downstream to the fourth, the fifth party that might be providing service and be subcontracting to their contractor or vendor. And then also the licensing, right? So looking at the IP sections, of course, always we're looking at the limitation of liability too, because we know there's risk in these transactions. We just don't know how big that risk is going to be completely because some of these tools and platforms that are being integrated that are out commercially available they're not as tested as we might want them to be for zero risk or mitigating risk below 5%. And also, um, we're looking at really being thoughtful about cutting out slices in the indemnification clauses related to intellectual property, right? So if we don't know how, for instance, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is going to advise under the Biden request that they actually weigh in and say, what are the outlines as far as ownership from what's created from these tools? For the copyright office, who can be an author? We believe that's going to fall on the side of the AI cannot be an author and only a human can. But we still have a little bit of gray area as far as what is the status of the part of the work that's created by the AI at this point and not directly from the prompt. So it is an interesting time on the contract side. But so often what I am saying as I go through this analysis and I look at these insurance policies and we talk about increases for errors and omission, maybe for cyber risk, um, is I'm saying, have you actually asked in addition that your vendors provide you with reporting that they are in compliance with applicable law related to how these tools are functioning or where the data is coming from? In particular, GDPR, if they're EU touching vendor or if your business touches the EU. And um, in addition, of course, California and the United States and New York City and all these jurisdictions now where we're getting biometric information and biometric data, BIPA laws like in Texas, and even in Virginia when it relates to employee data. In fact, in general, I'm saying to my clients, try to avoid any kind of employee data, career progression, termination-related AI tools for the time being until we get a little bit more clarity across the globe. But that kind of assessment, looking at the governance, do you have a chain of command and a control structure for how these tools are used and what data is going to be shared with them? in prompts or in customer data, that sounds like exactly when I'm calling your organization to join the team. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something we always want to work through and think through with our clients, right? And the typical scenario, right? A CEO says, we're going to implement AI and then goes to the CIO and says, let's make it happen. The first thing I always like to talk about is how are we going to use this AI? What is going to be the processes that AI is going to be enhancing? Is it going to cut down, you know, some paperwork and make us more efficient that way? Or as we've seen with certain organizations, are they going to use it to try to make risk-based decisions? And based off of how you want to implement AI at your organization, that's going to open up a can of worms because if you are using it to make impactful decisions on the business that might have those regulatory impacts, such as GDPR, you're feeding customer data into it that can have some really large ramifications. So the first thing we always like to say is, okay, how are you going to use this AI tool? How are we going to implement it? And then from there, we always say, let's take a stock of what our company looks like today. Let's take a true assessment and understand, are we prepared to implement this tool? So 
Do we have the governance in place? Do we have the data protection clauses? Have we worked with third parties to understand what's the risk there of sending that data? Do we have the contract with even our, our client information that we can put it through these systems? And more often than not, yeah, we might have some things that we've built out from our data governance program to get compliant with potentially GDPR, but we're going to need to build out a governance model specifically for AI to make sure that one, our organization is using it in an ethical way so that we're protecting our customers, but also that should we be using any of those third parties that might be getting that data, we've built out the processes to make sure that we're not accidentally disclosing anything that we really shouldn't. So having a really strong governance model can really put the organization in a much better position to actually implement those tools. If you go in and put AI into your organization with no kind of checks or balances, you probably are going to have someone use it in a way that the organization wouldn't like, and they're going to have to then call your lawyers to come in and say, hey, we've used this tool to build out a process that actually is causing us problems because it might have not done it in the correct path. So we need some legal help. We like to come in beforehand to try to make sure we can cut that down by building out that good governance beforehand. I'm on your same team as far as that philosophy. And my approach probably because law is a toolkit for me as well as a profession, right? It's a second career. I was a COO of a fast growth software company that was mid-market. I've spun out and built startup companies that involve software products and been very active in the tech community even as a programmer in earlier years. I'm very much like you. How can we allow the client to do what they want to do and still mitigate as much risk as possible and, and have awareness they can value it? Can we quantify that risk directly so that their accountants, their auditors like you, their, their reviewers can actually put that into the different financial reporting that they might need to do or the disclosures when we're doing a merger or acquisition deal, right? We want to be able to value that and value it as accurately as we can so that when we add it to a disclosure schedule where we're not going to be in violation of reps and warranties, right? And so all of that means that we have to go toward yes. And so when I'm approaching this, it's very much going to be, what is the way that we can do this? And then very often it's about communication and disclosure. It's about updating clauses and then having great insurance and asking partners to make representations and warranties on their side as far as limits. The last thought is, Having a background, the law doesn't like to innovate, right? We like to we like to look at precedent and copy what we did in the past and apply it to new situations. So we're great at analogies. And I see a lot from the movement in cybersecurity compliance for third-party risk. We also have the IP considerations, right? But cybersecurity also embodies and incorporates IP risk as well and IP theft and, and all that kind of thing. But the idea that we have moved towards a, an era where there needs to be a board committee for cybersecurity governance and oversight. I would say that an organization of size would need to either empower that committee to also do AI oversight, potentially create a second committee. And I think we're going to head there pretty quickly once lawyers decide and judges decide that accountability up the chain is going to need to be there for both. These are very powerful tools, and those are very high-risk cybersecurity incidents are high-risk, Right. And so either case, the risk is high enough for the use or the interaction that we need to have the board educated, involved, at least aware of what's going on within the organization operationally. And so I would give that tip. I do think that pursuing certifications that is going to become more and more the industry standard because that's 
it just is a silver bullet to say that we are doing things the right way. Now, of course, you actually have to be doing them the right way, which is where an organization like yours comes in and really helps ensure that certification is real. So we thank organizations like yours that come in and do that because we can do that up to a point. We're not true consultants on site looking under the hood day in and day out like yours can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And technology is that arms race. It's always trying to advance as quickly as possible. And you're right. Regulations will come in time, but it does take a bit of effort and it is always a little slow moving. But something I think every organization should look at is we know that there's going to be more and more stringent regulations around cybersecurity in general. We keep seeing more get pushed. We know that it's going to come down for AI as well. So when we go into these organizations, we want to talk to them and be giving them the blueprint for how they're going to be okay three years down the line when a, a massive new regulation comes in and says, you need all these governance bodies, you need all these programs developed to utilize this. Now, if you have that in place, great. We don't have to play catch up and try to build them on the fly right. as we've been using it for years. Having that forward-looking program and trying to evaluate risk and try to mitigate it without that regulatory impact is so important for the organizations to stay secure and to be efficient and being leaders in their industries. I always like to say that, yeah, regulations are great. They help push our organizations along, but always be looking forward to what do you think is going to be next and how can we mitigate those risks before they pop up? We always want to stop it before we have an incident, right? I, I'm with you. I think that's a great alignment on us. And it's not just because I'm so risk focused in the law. It's also an efficiency, to your point. If you can create an entire culture uh, today when, by definition, we're adopting this because it's going to help us grow. So we're going to be bigger later. We're going to be more complex of an organization later. We're going to have more human beings that are going to be involved in that control structure and that oversight and doing things the right way. If we can start when we're still at seed of that, by definition, at least in that business unit, with the proper practices that are see, look into the future, like where this is probably going to go with the help of advisors like you and me, you're going to not just have training is going to be easier, but it's going to mean something. There's going to be a whole hygiene within your organization that's toward good compliance. And boy, is it very difficult to comply later, not only by passing and putting in place these protocols, doing the trainings, but actually getting your team members to operate in that way if they've been doing it a different way for years and it's been succeeding. Yeah, absolutely. If your organization has been using AI in, let's say, a risky fashion, but there is no necessarily specific regulation that's stopping it. But two years down the line, your business process really relies on using that tool in that capacity. And now there's a new regulation coming in that says, hey, you have to have all these governance checks. And this might be out of that risk tolerance. Now you got to rethink that whole business process. And that is extremely difficult when it's been a winning strategy. So getting ahead of that, understanding that we can still use this really impactful tool, but we have to think about what's the security concerns, what's the regulatory concerns beforehand is always going to be easier for an organization than trying to build out that process on the fly after it's been in the organization and trying to clean up that data from potentially years ago. So we always like to try to think, how can we prevent tomorrow's problems today? 100%. 100%. So the tomorrow's problem, just from a legal standpoint, is the EU AI Act probably going to be adopted in short order. It will very likely be the high watermark, although California's legislature is currently 
debating, and the federal government has a couple of uh, acts in the U.S. government that relate specifically to an omnibus type of AI-specific uh, restrictions, regulations, uh, best practices relating to corporate governance, related to how it's deployed, relating to excluded categories of use, just embargoed categories of use, or high-risk categories of use that have additional reporting requirements, compliance requirements. What we will do in our practice is come in and talk about forward-thinking best practices today that take into account the EUA Act and what's going on and being debated in California's legislature, and then walk back whatever is not possible today, but keep it on the radar, knowing that's where we're probably headed with your operation in order to comply with future forward law, either statutory coming from Congress or from the state legislature or from the regulators themselves who have that power too. So it's going to be fun times. Matt, thank you so much for coming out and talking that through. I hope that if you are in one of those seats where you're making this decision to implement AI in your company, or you are the provider of it to others, this has been helpful. Certainly you are welcome to reach out to Matt. Matt, how can folks reach you if they want to after this? Yeah. So you can reach out to us at srm.com. Uh, There's a couple different ways to reach out to our team. Should there be an incident, we also have a 24-hour uh, hotline that you can find on our website that will get you with one of our members immediately. But this has been a really great conversation. Really look forward to working with you more on this fun topic of AI and trying to help all our clients be secure and move forward. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you.